Welcome to episode 18 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in virtual studio by the, the man who believes that good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> the one, the only, John Sloat. Hey, Doc. How are we doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So we are in the first week of May as we record together today. And um, by the way, episode 18. I mean, where where has the time gone? You know, I don't think we've missed a week. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, we're not quite content. We are not quite the Cal Ripken of the podcasting world, but you know, we're on our way. We're, We're on our way here. So um we'd love for you to connect with us on social media you can follow us on twitter at v and s pod and you can follow us on facebook a, a recent addition to our social yeah, media last couple presence. Of weeks. yeah so you can look for uh the various and sundry podcast uh facebook page give us a like give us a follow share it with your friends and uh, we also should make note of the fact that we have a new review. We've asked for those, and our our listeners are are slowly responding. So, yeah, Lee in Indiana has uh, has come through for us and uh, has left us a review, as he well has. as many as as well as many direct messages over Twitter to to converse about uh, the podcast episode. Yes, uh, though. Uh, if I might respond briefly to the last line of his review, um, I, I will uh, I will not be uh, turning away from my Ohio State bias, and so um, that just gives him perhaps more reason to get emotionally invested in the podcast as he reacts violently, given his uh, allegiances to uh, the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame. So, mm. all right. Uh, anything else we wanted to talk about here? Uh, there, I felt like there was something before the show you wanted to. Yes, we, yeah. we are, uh, we, we have noticed as we have been looking at where people are listening to the show that a good number of people skip, uh, the sports section, uh, which, which is understandable. Not everybody loves sports. Um, but we're, we are going to begin to attempt to put a ballpark time in the show notes of when you can skip forward uh, to where the sports are done. So we're going to try to start that this week. For those of you that struggle with sports, check the show notes and, uh, and see if that works for you. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're trying to do our best to, uh, to serve our listeners. And so as our first initial sort of uh, speaking of sports, I guess we could say, (laughs) so this is the time for you to skip forward. Apparently if you're not a fan of our sports (laughs) discussions, but uh, episodes five and six of The Last Dance dropped this past Sunday. So what were some of your initial thoughts on those, John? Uh, you know, there, were, there was a couple things. Uh, there was an interview with Kobe Bryant uh, that, that uh, kind of kicked things off, and it was a little strange to see. You know, it was... It was, it was very strange, yes. It was, it was, it was just like, is that, is that Kobe? It, it is. You know, and so it was... It was uh, it felt abrupt to me at times. Yeah. How about, it, did, yeah. It seemed very you? strange to me, to be honest. Like, um, it, it almost felt like it was just kind of thrown in there. I don't feel like it, it, it had a natural fit in the, in the story. It just kind of felt like, well, Kobe recently died and Kobe may have been the closest thing to MJ we've had since 
MJ left the league. And so we had this material, we had this interview, so we're just going to sort of throw it in there. And it didn't, it, it felt less integrated into the, the episode than some of the other stuff they talked about. Though it was interesting to hear MJ and some of the others talk about Kobe's first all-star appearance and being in the locker room and throwing shade at him about he's just yeah. going to go one-on-one and jack up shots, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That was, that was great. Um, yeah, it did, it did feel a little tacked on, but, and I wonder if they would have had more, a more detailed tribute to him if they had released this at the, when they intended to right after the NBA finals, you know? Yeah, it's possible. It's hard to know. Um, how different this might have been if it had been released in the summer because uh, my understanding is that they still haven't finished editing even the final episodes yet. Is that correct from what you understand? Yeah, yeah. I saw an interview with the director yesterday and um, he said that I think seven, eight, and maybe nine are, are ready to go. And, but uh, they're, still, they're still working on that last one. Um, and I saw the the interview. I saw the host goes, "Well, what do you think about just making an eleventh and a twelfth? You know, just just keep going." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, there is a it is an interesting dynamic that you wonder about the creative process when when you're mapping this out and you're thinking, okay, the first episodes won't be released until June, and then all of a sudden everything changes. And you're fast tracking this so you can release the first thing in, uh, what was that, like two weeks ago, you know, last week in April, um, which certainly makes you wonder what does that do to the creative process in terms of what kind of different product might have come out had they been able to have more time. But something that I wanted to get your thoughts on is they did bring up MJ's gambling issues. What did you think about how they handled that? the whole issue um uh, they so one, one of the things i think that's interesting about this documentary is mj has control of what's shown so yes. he has editorial control and um there's a couple different sets of interviews with mj um i can't remember what it is but but there's like one shirt that he's wearing where the interview was very early on two years ago and there's another shirt he's wearing where it was like February. He was doing these interviews after he was able to watch everybody else's interviews and then respond to them. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm interested. I'm fascinated. They let him put, I'm, I'm fascinated that he allowed the gambling piece to be put in there. Uh, and they kind of, I, I felt like they swept it under the rug a little bit. Um, kind of saying like, well, this is like 10 bucks to MJ, right? There, there's, this is like $10 and, uh, but I, I think, I, I do think he was right when he said, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competitive problem. Yes. I, I think that's instead. probably right though. Think about this, John, if, if they had not mentioned it at all, it would have been a huge problem. All of the, like that would have left almost no credibility to the whole thing because sure. it was such a big story that you can't tell the story of Michael Jordan without having that as a piece of it. So it had to be mentioned, but I agree that it was done in a very uh, sort of cursory, um, as minimal as possible in light of the fact that MJ has editorial control of this. But I I was, part, part of what I enjoyed most about those segments was 
showing the clips in the locker room of him playing this made-up game with mm-hmm. security staff where yes. they're flicking quarters to try to get it closest to, I think, like the red the red parts in the carpet or something like that. And, you know, it's just this fascinating picture, which I think contributes to the, he has a competition problem, right? I mean, here are these security staff folks who make like one, you know, one hundred thousandth of what MJ makes. And MJ's, yeah. you know, dropping, uh, okay, 20 bucks and, you know, you get three tries and I get once to try to get it closest to this. And, and it, 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 it is an interesting perspective on this guy was just so ridiculously competitive that he's even just, you know, making bets with the security staff about dumb games. Like, th- like that's the kind of stuff that college kids do in the dorm, right? Maybe not oh, putting absolutely. that kind of money on it, but it's like, okay, we're going to create this, this made up game where we're competing against each other late at night. There's a, uh, there was a book uh, that came out a couple of years ago called the cost of these dreams uh, where uh, a person goes around and interviews a bunch of different athletes. And I saw an interview with this author and he said he spent a couple of weeks with uh, Michael Jordan and uh, Michael Jordan uh, is like the number three bejeweled player in the world uh, because he's such a competitive freak, right? He just has to be the best at whatever he does. And it's, you know, he makes the argument in the book that it's made him a shell of himself. It was, I think the line was, uh, a man perfect fit for the first 40 years of his life, but incapable of enjoying the next 40, um, which I thought was, I thought was a beautiful line, right? Um, that yeah. he's, you know, that, that com- competition that he has was so good for uh, so much of his life, but now has left him un- unable to enjoy uh, the, the last uh, half of his life. Yeah, I think that um, it, it it speaks to the fact that someone like MJ, who is so great at one thing or a narrow range of things, uh, it, that it raises the question of in order to be great, I mean, like, not just like great, but the best, truly the most elite person at doing something, that you probably have to be an unbalanced person. Mm-hmm. That because you devote so much time, energy, resources, et cetera, into becoming the absolute best at one thing, that the other areas of your life are neglected and therefore you're a very unbalanced person. That you're elite great in one thing, but then in other areas of your life, you're actually uh, either very immature or um, incapable of even perhaps functioning well in certain areas of life because all of your time, energy, resources, etc., are invested in this one area of your life. Yeah, and and I, I mean, uh, I I just don't think that leads to a very healthy human. You know, like like I don't think that's God's vision of of how humans flourish. And agreed. You know, there was the they they went into it a little bit in the documentary, the Be Like Mike campaign. Yep. Um, and I, I just, I just think looking at it now, you know, 30 years later, you know, it's just like, I don't, I don't know that you actually want to be like Mike. That's a bad idea. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I do think, yeah, you got a little bit of a a peek behind the curtain a little bit where MJ was talking about how, um, that he was, he was almost a prisoner of his fame at points where it's, you know, he's kind of almost stuck in his hotel room because if he tries to go out anywhere, 
he was just absolutely mobbed by fans. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they show him just sort of hanging out in his hotel room, isolated, watching TV. And I'm just being like, yeah, this is kind of my life because if I go out anywhere, I have to be on people mob me, people want a piece of me. And, um, that, you know, there, there's a, I, I can see how there's a part of people's, you know, draw to that where you think, Oh, wow. How, how great would it be to be famous? Some people are obviously do a lot to try to get famous, but I, I think that there's the obvious downside there that MJ kind of gives you the behind the curtain of, I can't do normal things. Like if mm-hmm. I just want to walk down the street and grab a cup of coffee or something, you can't do that because uh, he, he's lost that ability because of his fame. So, yeah, he did play a lot of golf though. He did, but uh, you know, he's playing at high end clubs. Yeah. You know, he's not going down to the public municipal course and, and dropping down 20 sure. bucks to play 18. Um, you know, he, he's going to the high end clubs where, uh, only the high rollers can get in. And so I think probably in those contexts, there's a little less of that. Um, he probably has a little bit more opportunity to be uh, on his own, or at least just with his you know circle of people around him. And gamble with them. As we, and as gamble we with them, yes, indeed. <laughs> as we learned in the documentary. Yeah. One other um, sports note before we move on to our next topic for uh, this episode. Uh, Don Shula famous NFL coach of the Miami Dolphins uh, led the Dolphins to, I think, was it two or three Super Bowl championships? can't remember. I think it's just not, two, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. The most, the most famous, of course, was the undefeated season uh, that he led the Dolphins to in 73, something like that, 74, somewhere early 70s. And uh, he passed away uh, this past week at the age of 90. And I think at one time he might have been, if he isn't so currently, he's at least up there on the all-time list of uh, most wins for an NFL coach. Hmm. So uh, a sort of legendary coach of the NFL. But um, our, our, our next topic really is one we want to spend a little bit more time on than our uh, discussion of sports in the last dance. And that is the fact that at least where we are here in the state of Indiana, and it's true of other uh, locations around the United States that some of the restrictions in light of the uh, COVID-19 crisis are beginning to be lifted in certain ways. And here in Indiana, at least, uh, the governor has announced that um, as part of easing those restrictions, that worship services will be uh, allowed to meet again. And so uh we realize that's not the case necessarily in the places where everyone is listening from, but we thought it'd be a helpful thing to kind of talk through what kind of considerations should pastors and churches and uh, even believers in general be thinking about as they consider the possibility of resuming uh, in-person gatherings. So, um, I don't know if you want to add anything to framing the, the the current situation before we start to dive into some of the specifics, John, or. Yeah. Yeah. I think we want to talk about how, uh, how do we do this while um, honoring 
uh, some, of, some of the government's uh, requirements, social distancing, those sorts of things. So how, what are some ways, how are some, how, what are some things that we're going to have to change? How do we go about that change? So. And I think it's, it's at least interesting to note uh, that these things are going to vary state by state, correct? And one of the unique things about Indiana is that they have kept the uh, limitations on the size of gatherings, right? So they bumped it up. I think now we're at 25 is where we're allowed yeah, to go. Whereas 20, before it was 10. 25, yeah. Still practicing social distancing. But the governor has given a specific exemption to religious services. So that apparently, from what I understand, those uh, numbers, that limitation, doesn't apply to religious services. And so what uh, that's just fascinating because it almost feels like here in Indiana, they're going to the opposite uh, extreme of some, you know, some lo local uh, officials and states have seemingly felt like they are targeting religious services and saying, absolutely not, you're, you can't do that. Uh, and it feels like Indiana's going the other direction and saying, we're going to keep social uh, gatherings limited, but give this massive exemption to religious services that you can essentially have as large a gathering as you want, as long as you're practicing social distancing. Yeah, and it's really it's really a statement that you know our governor trusts uh, most of the churches to do the right thing. There there will be some people out there that that uh, may not do the social distancing thing while at church um, and. Um, but I, I think most are probably most are probably on board. I think so. Um, so with but, that said, yeah. Um, what, let's let's start with some maybe some biblical principles to think about as we approach this issue. We'll, we'll get into some of the the details of of practical considerations, but I think it'd be helpful for us to start biblically. Are there any biblical principles that help us think through how to proceed from here? Yeah, um, I mean, prob probably the, the simplest and broadest one is uh, love of our neighbor. Uh, so we want uh, humans to flourish, even, even, even people who aren't a part uh, of faith. And so one, one way that we can love our neighbor is to continue to practice some sort of social distancing in order to not continue the spread of the virus so that we can, uh, so that we can get back to normal when it's appropriate and, uh, and not cause illness or sickness among uh, friends, family, neighborhoods, communities, those sorts of things. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And uh, along with that, I think there's a particular emphasis in scripture about believers having a concern for those who are vulnerable. You know, you think about the Old Testament, how God consistently mentions his love for and care for the the widow the orphan the mm -hmm. stranger and even into the new testament you see the picture emerging of one of the defining characteristics of the early church was their care for uh fellow believers and even non-believers the sick the the poor the vulnerable and so i think that there there's an area where as 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 churches consider what does it look like for us to begin meeting again in person that needs to be a pretty important uh, value to consider in terms of what are we doing 
what steps can we take to make sure we're doing what is feasible to protect those who are most vulnerable during this uh, crisis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And caring, but, and to bring it right into the to where we're at, but but caring for the elderly in that way, you know, um, setting up a way for them to attend services uh, while social distancing, or you know, and we can talk about specifics and how we do that in, in a little bit. But um, trying to find some way for them to be able to attend a service without it being a high risk situation for them. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, and, and also probably should mention here, um, there is a biblical framework in, in place for thinking about submitting to legitimate government authority, and I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on that one, because that's obviously a debatable We don't know where we'll one. end up. <laughs> yeah, in terms of the specifics of how you apply that, but at a minimum, I think it's fair to say that we as believers— should have a posture that is a sort of default towards submission to government authority that uh, doesn't directly violate clear um, commands and expectations expressed in Scripture. I think we can leave it at that in terms of uh, a general principle. Obviously, people will disagree on the specifics of how that applies. But all right, so. Um... Doc, uh, how? Uh, let, let, let's get into some more specifics. Um, for for our context here in Indiana, um, what what are some ways that churches can begin to meet uh, while respecting some of these uh, social distancing uh, requests? Yeah, so I think that uh, from what I've seen, and maybe you can add to this list if I'm missing anything, but it seems to me like there are kind of three. Uh, broad approaches in terms of uh, thinking about regathering. One is what some uh, churches have already tried in earlier stages of this crisis was the whole drive-in church, where you know you everyone pulls up in their cars in a drive in a parking lot, and you do something like that. That's one potential option that that could be considered. Another is um, the outdoor service, right? So you could uh, have a gathering outdoors. And then the third, at least in my mind, is the some sort of inside gathering. And it seems like that option requires the most thought, uh, the, the most thought in terms of how to do it that still uh, tries to honor some of the social distancing practices. So those seem to be the kind of the three broad options that I, I can think of if, if you want to do something in person. I, I think it should be noted that uh, nothing demands at this point that in-person gatherings be restarted. I think there's hmm. a large desire for it, to be sure. sure. And I'm, that, that's a good sign, by the way. But uh, I don't think that there's anything that mandates it, given the uh, current circumstances. So I, I don't think that churches should feel like, well, here in Indiana, the, gover the governor said we're open for business in terms of churches. So as soon as possible, like next Sunday, we should be back up and running in terms of opening the doors and, and getting people in the same uh, location. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that 
um, we can begin to meet together, but there's nothing that that's saying we have to. So that there could be another two, three weeks where we're we're waiting to to meet together still. Absolutely, and I think that depending on the size of the church, there are all mm-hmm. sorts of uh, factors to take into account here when it comes to. It, it's a lot simpler if you have a congregation of fifty or seventy-five people yeah. than it is if you have a congregation of four hundred, a thousand. 1,500, 3,000, you know, the larger the, the church is, the far more complicated these uh, matters become. Yeah. Um, so one, one thing that I do um, at church is uh, weekly, and, and I'll let you get in your bit about it, but um, is, is, I, uh, is I make and serve the coffee um, most Sundays um, at our church. Is yeah, that so you, something you are the deacon of coffee? There it is. There it is. I am the deacon of coffee. And just to be clear, <laughs> that is an unofficial position, but it is very important. <laughs> um, so have we have we seen it go by the wayside? Have we seen uh, uh, coffee lost at churches, or is it going to look differently? Or what are your what are your thoughts on on how I serve the church currently, or have in the past, and <laughs> will I be able to serve the church in this capacity in the future? Well, I think it's important to note that, at least as far as I'm aware, there is no chapter and verse in the Bible that mandates that a church must serve coffee when it gathers. There's also no verse that prohibits it either. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Absolutely. I I, I couldn't agree more, uh, but (laughs) I I think that, you know, I, I, I wonder if there are um, you know, it might be wise not to serve coffee in the sense that that tends to gather people in a specific part of uh, the building. And it does raise the question of how many different dozens, maybe hundreds potentially of people, you know, touching the, uh, the coffee apparatus, you know, the, yeah. to, uh, to get their coffee. And though, you know, perhaps you could do something where, either you or someone else who's helping you is the one designated person that actually just distributes the coffee, right? Sure. That they stand there and uh, when someone wants a cup of coffee, they, there's the one person serving it who, you know, actually pours it into the cup and then hands it to uh, whoever wants it or puts it on the counter perhaps, and then allows that person to grab it. So there's some measure of lack of so there's not as much risk of actual physical contact between the people uh so you know there are some of those considerations to be to be there but uh, has the leadership of our church reached out to you in light of your important role as the deacon of coffee yeah no they haven't um (laughs) fairly disappointed uh i don't feel like we're a priority um you know, this, this uh, incredibly important ministry just doesn't seem to be on their radar, and I, and I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is surprising. But, uh, you know, they are dealing with a pandemic crisis here, so perhaps we'll cut them a little bit of slack. So, so um, one, thing that's, one thing that's happened, not, not to just talk about this, but um, I've had contactless. Have you, if you've ordered a pizza, uh, they've started doing contactless delivery uh, which is, uh, which was a little intimidating. So I got a, I got a pizza the other day and I doorbell rang. I went to order it or I went to pick it up and the guy is standing probably 10 feet back with his arms crossed looking pretty intimidating. And there's just a <laughs> pizza on the ground 
and I go, here's your tip. I set it on the, the ground, take my pizza and I go inside and yes, assumedly he came and took the tip. But um, is there a way we could do uh, not just con- contactless coffee, uh, but also, how how do you see communion going forward? Are we going to come to a contactless communion or a contactless uh, offering plate, uh, a contactless baptism? Um, how how <laughs> how do you see these things fleshing themselves out? Yeah, to me, the issue of communion and probably offering plates are the two most tangible practices that need to be rethought in terms of, you know, especially think about offering plates and the fact that you've got this object that is passed hand to hand between people. That just seems like it's something that we shouldn't be doing during a, uh, during this COVID-19 crisis. Now, when it comes to communion, obviously churches do things in a variety of different ways. I, I would certainly hope that any church tradition that normally has the common cup yep. <laughs> has, uh, has decided at least temporarily to stop doing that. That would seem like the ultimate way to uh, spread COVID-19 when it comes to everybody drinking out of one cup. That just seems like a, a disaster waiting to happen. Oh, agreed. Agreed. But at CCC, we pass uh, a plate that's got the elements while well, the bread is passed in like baskets, but and little, but they're little fragments, right? Um, and in fact, um, you know, the Harmon family has uh, encouraged larger chunks of bread for communion <laughs> to the point where this is one of my major accomplishments at, at Christ Covenant Church here, is that in conversation with the deacons, we have created what has been re- referred to as the Harmon hunk, that there needs to be a certain size of chunk of bread in the baskets so that uh, it's a little bit more substantive. But in any case. Now you've, uh, largest accomplishment, I'd like to dwell on that for a second. I didn't say largest, I said one of. One of, okay, okay, okay. Well, you've preached multiple times, you have taught (laughs) multiple Sunday schools, we've even filmed one of your Sunday school classes that goes up on the Gospel Coalition website here in the near future, right? Eventually, yeah. But among that list of accomplishments (laughs) at the church is the Harmon Hunk. It is, it is certainly one of our <laughs> prouder moments as a family. That we, I don't think I knew that one. That, one, that one's new information to me. Okay, yeah. Well, we, we, we have even offered to up our giving if necessary to <laughs> uh, help provide enough bread for the deacons to increase the size of the chunk of bread offered in communion. So in any case... I don't know if you have any thoughts. I'm sure our deacons have thought through all of this. My understanding is that there are even like pre-packaged little communion. Um, I don't even know how to describe it, right? Little little bite-sized pieces of bread apparently or something that are pre-packaged. And so you could perhaps incorporate some of that. I, I just don't know what the logistics would be on something like that though. Do you have any ideas? I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, other than having a, a common table that everybody comes to, to, to grab it, but then that creates issues of its own. You have the coffee issue then, right? Where people are right. gathering around this table. Um, maybe you do three or four stations throughout the, throughout the, and I'm thinking of an indoor um, setting here, but yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a bit of a, bit of a struggle. Maybe everybody brings their own bread and juice. I, I don't know. That'd be one way to solve it. But I don't, I don't necessarily like that either. That, that, that gets away from the common experience, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I think offering plates a little bit easier, right? You yep. you set the plate at the back, and people can can drop it in either as they come in or as they leave. Um, and obviously with online giving, you know, there's still a sure. strong encouragement to uh, to be able to do it that way. In fact, it, it's pretty clear that at, in our local church there must be a substantial amount of online giving because we tend to sit towards the back of the congregation. Mm-hmm. And by the time the offering plate gets to us, there's not much in it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem to match the budgets that we go over no, for sure. <laughs> no. So uh, there has to be a decent bit of online giving going on. So which is good, which is good. Well, what are some other issues, John, that you can think of when it comes to uh, that need to be sorted out? Let's, let's start with, let, let's, Let's assume for a minute we're talking about indoor services because I think that's a little bit of a different okay. animal than maybe going outdoors. Let's let's think about indoor service and in particular things that churches and yeah. pastors should be thinking about. Yeah, and uh, thinking about our own congregation, uh, our uh, meeting space is is pretty packed with people. Um, so I I think churches like ours, uh, which which ours is a probably large medium church to, to large church is probably going to have to go multiple services. I imagine um, uh, at In some part point because so yeah, we're, we're around from my understanding between three fifty and 400 when college students aren't in session, which is now essentially. So yeah, that's, that's well over the, um, well over what uh, is advisable. However, uh, another factor in that is the size of the sanctuary. It, it's not a small sanctuary, but if you really started to pace out the, you know, the six feet of social distancing or even clumping together families and that sort of thing, the, the capacity of that sanctuary would drop quickly into mm-hmm. what could be feasible. So I probably at least you would think if you're going to try to limit that or do it inside, you would have to, to consider going to the multiple service route, which does, uh, at least from my perspective, that raises the concern of additional uh, stress and workload on the staff at a time when there's already a pretty heavy uh, disruption of what's normally been going on. And so that, that concerns me that if you're suddenly adding services to, to accommodate that. And then furthermore, you probably then have to start dictating, right? You have to say, if your last name begins yeah. with this, you're going at nine o'clock. So A through, you know, G, you're at nine o'clock. H through S, you're at 11 o'clock. And then the rest of you, T through Z, you're you're going at one or something like that. Like, I, I don't know how else you'd sort of maintain a, a even distribution of people. Yeah, I, I think that's... Uh... Yeah, and I can't think of a better way to do it if you're going to do an indoor service. Um, and, you know, the the drawbacks of an outdoor service is, you know, what if you plan to have everybody meet and then, oh my goodness, there's a thunderstorm that's going to bear down on us in 20 minutes, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Weather certainly becomes an issue with that. Um, and the, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, where you're at as well, like, here in Indiana, May is no guarantee of a of a of a nice Sunday morning. In fact, uh, one of the most uh, memorable 
wedding experiences I've ever had was going to a wedding the second weekend in May where it was about 40 degrees outside. Yeah. I think I was also at a wedding, a different wedding that same day. Cause I think I know the wedding that you're talking about, but uh, it was also outside and it was, it was cold. <laughs> oh, so cold. I mean, you had people going into their trunks, getting blankets and extra coats and things. And it was absolutely uh, frigid. Uh, so anyway, so I think, you know, outdoor is an option. I think it's easier to social distance as an, in an outdoor service, but it also has its complications with weather and, um, and, and those kinds of things. You'd also have to probably scale things back in terms of doing a simplified uh, worship experience. And on top of all of these, I think that churches probably need to consider what options are still going to be available for those who either should stay home or just feel uncomfortable and unsafe and don't want to risk going out to a service like this. I think there's still going to need to be some yeah. sort of streaming or online option for people like that, because I do think it's still wise to encourage those who are over 65, you should be staying home. Like this is, this is a high risk population and those who get the virus in that population, the, the mortality rate is just through the roof compared to other population groups, as well as people who have pre-existing conditions that make them more vulnerable. You know, people like that should consider staying at home just in the abundance of caution. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And well, Doc, there's a host of issues we could talk about here. I mean, we haven't even hit everything on our list yet, uh, but uh, time presses us and I, uh, I suggest we, we press on. I agree. We've got an article that we'll link to in the show notes that has a series of questions that church leaders and churches should think about before they make final plans in terms of reopening worship services. And so we'll link to that in the in the show notes so that if you're in that situation, I think it just it raises some good questions to think about. It's not as much, you know, here's a detailed plan of how to do it. But here are things you should be thinking about and brainstorming about to make sure your, your bases are covered. Yeah. But we have an important topic to discuss next. Some, something that I'm personally excited to talk about. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, mostly, I, I believe in the Pacific Northwest right now, um, there is something uh, that is hidden and dangerous that is not the coronavirus. And uh, it has been referred to on uh, the internet as the murder hornet. Yes. Um, and, you know, we, we were, I, I didn't learn about this probably until the last few days ago when I saw it on social media pop up. It is a horrifying, horrifying uh, bug. <laughs> yeah, the pictures are absolutely terrifying. I, I've seen both close-up ones and then ones where uh, it's like on someone's chest like these things are two inches long and have a wingspan of like three inches. They are monstrous. And they have pincers on their mouth. And so they, they, they look horrifying. Um, I, I, would, I would encourage you. I mean, you have a three inch wingspan. I mean, that's, that's basically a flying cockroach that can sting you. <laughs> yes. And what's terrifying to me is apparently they have these stingers that can penetrate the suits that beekeepers wear. 
Yeah. yeah. One apparently one person who's been stung by this described this as like a hot nail going through my leg. Yeah. I'm I'm utterly um, terrified by these things now. Utterly terrified. And it, it, it comes from I believe I believe Asia, J- yes. Japan maybe. Um, and it, in Japan, they have 50 deaths a year due to uh, the murder hornet. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the big issues with it is not that it's just a, um, a horrifying looking bug that looks like some, uh, we, we compared it before we went on uh, to, the, to the tracker jacker from, uh, from the Hunger Games. Um, but uh, but it, it kills honeybees. It goes right after honeybees, which which are essential in yes uh, uh, pollinating flowers and, and doing different things like that. And my understanding of the honeybee, and which is not is not large, but uh, my understanding <laughs> of the honeybee is the population is is already tenuous. Right, we we need more honeybees out there, um, and this is uh, this is going to attack them and, and kill them. Yeah, this is absolutely terrifying to me, and. Um... Thankfully, from what I understand, we here in Indiana are not currently at risk. They've been spotted in the Pacific Northwest up in Washington State. And um, so... In, in Canada, too, I believe. I believe they're yes. in Canada as well. And yeah. scientists are not entirely sure how they got here from Asia. But nonetheless, they are here. And it's the latest in the efforts of 2020 to go down as the worst year ever. Oh my goodness, 2020's been rough. It has. It's, it's been a tough year. <laughs> it has. It's, it's, it's May. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's even more terrifying. We're, we're like a third of the way through the year and we've had enough things happen this year that would be like the worst thing that happens in a year kind of thing, right? So, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, we're, we're gonna keep up on the murder hornet and uh, and try to uh, keep abreast of uh, of different developments uh, surrounding the the hornet. So yes, well, we should uh, talk about our athlete since this is episode eighteen. And how about we do it like this? Since uh, there's really no debate on this, I don't think. There's so no I'll just debate. go. I'll just go ahead and mention probably uh, the most uh, significant Ohio State football player to wear number eighteen not a very common number, was Andy Groom, the punter from their national championship team uh, in 2002, was a, uh, was a very good punter for them. And during that era of Ohio State football with Jim Trestle as the coach, uh, Jim Trestle famously said, the punt is the most important play in football. Mm-hmm. And so to have a good punter was essential for his system. So a shout out to Andy Groom uh, for Ohio State. But who is our uh, athlete for episode 18 here, John? Uh, it's, it's Peyton Manning, and yeah. there's, there's just no debate. Uh, a very successful college career, very successful pro career, um, and, uh, and has uh, two Super Bowl wins, one uh, with the Colts, one with the Broncos. Um, also, an, a number of you know, uh, Pro Bowl appearances and playoff appearances and all these things, and... Uh, he was he was he was an impressive quarterback uh, for for a number of years and and is has a does a number of ads and commercials. Yes, um, he's he's an interesting contrast to Tom Brady in the sense that uh, you know Tom Brady has more Super Bowl wins and all that kind of stuff, but uh, in terms of public perception, I think even people who didn't root for either the Colts or the Broncos when he played for them 
generally liked Peyton Manning. He had a public persona that was very likable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's appeared on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I'll never forget the little uh, Saturday Night Live little skit they did with the little kids uh, uh, in, yeah. <laughs> running routes and Peyton Manning, you know, chucking the football and hitting a kid in the head and chewing kids out for running bad routes and that sort of stuff. So, um, I, and he's, you know, he's got this sort of larger than life persona. And everybody's trying to figure out where is he going to be an analyst at? Cause everybody wants him to be an analyst, uh, for, for a football game. Everybody thinks he'd be fantastic. Cause yeah, there are tens so of- smart, witty, funny, tens of millions of dollars sitting on the table for him whenever he wants to jump into oh, the yeah. broadcast booth. So. Oh yeah. All right. So John, what's your one thing you liked this week as we wrap up here? Um, well, doc, I've been spending, so, uh, uh, we, we got a new house. Um, and so we have been talking through improvements, things we'd like to see, those sorts of things. Uh, and it's always cheaper to build something rather than, uh, buy something. So I've spent a lot of time on one of my favorite websites, build something. Um, and it basically is free plans, uh, for you to build things. They recommend tools that you'll need all these things, how to cut it, how to do all these things. And so I've been spending a lot of time on that website, figuring out how to build garage storage or raised beds or, you know, whatever, whatever we need. So that's my one thing this week. Gotcha. Well, we are in a similar genre this week. So um, a good friend of ours uh, allowed me to borrow his Sawzall. If you're not familiar with a Sawzall, it's a Mm -hmm. reciprocating saw. And um, it's great. Oh my goodness. I had it. I have a, a, an overgrown small tree at the back corner of our house that needed to be significantly uh, cut down, not like taken out, but like trimmed down. Mm-hmm. So I took about an hour, hour and a half on Saturday and used this remarkable tool to just knock off branches and limbs. And um, I, I am now sold. This is now going to be something I have to add to my own personal tool collection at some point, perhaps for Father's Day or birthday this summer. So I am a big fan now of the uh, reciprocating saw. That's yeah. my one thing I like this week. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You use those in the past. They're wonderful. They're delightful. They're delightful. So if our listeners want to give recommendations for a brand uh, or a specific one, I'm happy to take those though. Please keep in mind um, I'm on a modest budget when it comes to that. So let's, let's, let's think for a minute here, John, we've talked about the last dance. We've talked about churches restarting. We've talked about, the murder hornets we've yeah, talked which about is a horrifying thing. yeah terrifying yeah. uh peyton manning and house projects around the home here we've I, done it i think by definition that is an exemplar of various and sundry topics it's it, it's sort of the the epitome of the range of topics that that we like to talk about on this podcast yeah absolutely so I, I feel like good about marking this as uh, as done, you know, checking oh, that yeah. off the list, mission accomplished here. And so I think that all that's left to say at this point is the Lord bless y'all real good. Later.